In my last episode of My Time, My Life, I talked about the struggles and challenges I faced as a young model in Paris. On today's episode, I'll discuss my experience in New York, where I moved to after Paris. 1992 in New York City was very different from the New York we know today. Back then, it was crime-ridden, edgy, and dangerous. Times Square was full of adult video stores, prostitution, and drug dealing. This was the New York I stepped into the first time when I arrived as a model. I'd visited the city once before with a model friend I'd met in Chicago in a runway class. And as we walked through New York's Soho district, we saw the designer Isaac Mizrahi on the streets. We were so excited and thought, wow, he's going to discover us. Just like so many stories we'd read about models being discovered on the streets. That dream was soon shattered when after I approached him, and I don't even know what I said, he looked me up and down, then continued on his way. Oh well. Regardless, I was not deterred. After being rejected by one of the biggest designers of the 90s, I returned home to Joliet and waited tables again until I had enough money to move there. Off I went, severely underfunded. I rented a room at the Martha Washington Hotel for Women in Murray Hill for $30 a night. It had a twin bed, a surprisingly large closet, the New York view of a brick wall, and a shared bathroom down the hall. It was safe, but uninspiring in every sense of the word. I soon found a waitressing job at a restaurant called Mumbles in Gramercy Park, which was helpful because I could eat there for free. It was the only time I was eating because I had no money. If I worked on a Monday, but not again till Wednesday, then I didn't eat on Tuesday, or I'd eat something really cheap like ramen noodles or maybe a bagel. I'd gone to an open call at Ford Models and walked for Susan Devine, who was the runway director at the time, and she gave me a shot. She didn't offer me a contract, but she did send me out as a Ford runway model. A feather in my cap. I walked to all my go-sees because I couldn't afford the subway, which was scary then, so I avoided it, and I certainly couldn't afford taxis. I walked and walked and walked all over New York and went to go-see after go-see, but never booked a job. I ran into the same challenges I had in Paris, being black and too big, although I was still just skin and bones, but this time I was also told I was too tall. At six foot one, the designers told me they couldn't pair me with a male model on the runway because I'd be taller than him. And I also couldn't fit into the clothes because the sleeves were never long enough. So now I had yet something else I couldn't change about myself working against me, my height. I pressed on, starving, trying to book a job. The man I'd met in Paris on the train who became my boyfriend lived up in Boston and would come and visit me on the weekends, adding a bright spot, bright spot to my often dismal weeks. I was grateful for my waitressing job and would sit at the bar after my shift and eat a massive bowl of fettuccine chicken alfredo and bread rolls because it was the most filling thing on the menu, and I knew it would be my last meal until I worked again. I would sit there, scarfing it down, along with my shift drink, usually a fuzzy navel, until the bartender figured out I wasn't yet 21. But until then, I sat there and I drank as Bonnie Raitt's I Can't Make You Love Me played on the jukebox, which was my sentiment to the modeling business. It was during one of my days off where I hit rock bottom. I 
had three days into my next shift and a crisp $20 bill in my pocket, which was supposed to last me until then. So hungry I couldn't think straight. I found myself at a bodega on Lexington Avenue near my hotel, and my eyes lit up when I saw the 649 LB sign above the buffet that caught my eye. Jackpot! I thought the sign meant however much food I could fit into a takeout container would only be $6.49. I'm smart enough to know that LB means pound, but in the state I was in, I completely forgot. I greedily took a white styrofoam container and began stuffing food in. I stuffed in everything from chicken, sushi, spaghetti, bread, fish, and whatever else. And I made a mental note to remember this place because I thought, at $6.49, I'll be able to afford to eat here every day. I was so pleased with myself that I grabbed a large container of orange juice, a Twix candy bar, and a pack of gum. My eyes were glassy with joy when I reached the counter with all my food, which I thought would only total about $10 or so. So when I placed the food on the scale and it alone totaled no nearly $14, I almost passed out. Suddenly realizing my mistake, I was so embarrassed to put anything back and left the store with about $3 in my pocket after it was all totaled. I broke down and cried as I walked back to my sad room where I only had a single countertop burner that my mom had sent me to make ramen noodles. I got back to my room and not having a fridge, chastised myself for buying so much food that I had no way of storing. In a span of 30 minutes, I went from starving to having to force feed myself everything before it spoiled. So I sat in my room that night and the next day and I ate it all. I wrote the cousin I'd lived with the year before in Tacoma and told her what happened as she felt so badly for me she sent me another $20. I didn't want to alarm my already worried mom about what was going on with me any more than I did when I was in Paris by myself and now having these problems in New York. She was already doing what she could and she sent me care packages that warmed my heart. To solidify my rock bottom state, when I went home for Christmas to Joliet, my cousin lifted up my skinny wrist and horrified asked if I was anorexic. Chipperly, I replied, no, I'm just living in New York. I knew I needed to make a change, so I left New York as it just wasn't working out and moved up to Boston, where my then-boyfriend lived, with the intention of taking a three-month break before returning to New York. Those three months turned into five years. There are many failures here to mention, but the experience was invaluable. When I arrived in New York, I'd had the benefit of having honed my survival skills in Chicago and Paris, and they solidified in New York. Being alone in New York City in the early 90s, hustling, putting everything I had into pursuing my dream and all the rejection that came with that gave me a skin so thick that I became numb to any subsequent rejection. I learned not to take anything personally and just to keep pressing on. This lesson would help me tremendously when I entered the notoriously fickle entertainment business a few years later. On the face of it, my attempt as a 20-year-old New York model was not a success by any measure. But I learned to live alone in a city with no friends. I navigated the world I was in and I kept myself safe and I came out of it a survivor. Terrible things happen to young models all the time, but nothing bad ever happened to me. My mom prayed every day for my safety and her prayers were answered. It is these metrics by which I regard my time in New York then. I was broke, hungry, 
and a failed model, but I was a success because I made it out of that time with my mental and physical health intact. And for a dreamy-eyed girl from Joliet, actually taking the risk and chasing my dream in Paris and New York and rejecting the safe route of going to college right after high school like everyone else was its own success. My experiences were teaching me far more than I could have ever learned in a classroom. On the next episode of My Time, My Life, I'll be talking about how my time in Boston, where I would go to Emerson College, would change my life in ways I could have never imagined. Thank you for listening.